Welcome to the 17th episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. Yesterday, we posted another great piece by former Scientology auditor and Sea Org member Bruce Hines. This time, Bruce had a bit of a bombshell for us. It turns out that in 1993, he was sent to a house in Los Feliz, California, to audit a particularly special person in Scientology's long history. And that's Mary Sue Hubbard, the third and last wife of founder L. Ron Hubbard, who had died some seven years previously. For the first time, we get some idea what it was like to audit the famous Mary Sue, who went to prison for her husband, and at one time oversaw Scientology's vast spying network, the Guardian's office. What a piece. And we couldn't wait to ask Bruce even more questions about it. Bruce Hines, wow, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. And uh, once again, you have given us such an amazing piece written by you from your experience in Scientology. And this time, we got to learn what it was like to audit Mary Sue Hubbard. Thanks for coming on, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I have to tell you, I was so excited about this because that's Mary Sue Hubbard is an interesting figure for those uh, who are a little newer to this whole thing. They, uh, L. Ron Hubbard was the founder of Scientology. Uh, he had seven children uh, in three different marriages. His third wife was Mary Sue Hubbard. Mary, Mary Sue Whip, I believe, was her maiden name. Um, he met her... He had come out with Scientology in 1950, I mean, Dianetics in 1950. It was a huge hit for about a year. And then everything just just was, went really bad for Ron. His second marriage uh, broke up. He absconded to Cuba for a while. He was trying to rebuild things in Wichita, I believe, when he met Mary Sue. And she was younger than him. And she became a very ardent, you know, dedicated Dianeticist. They ended up going to Phoenix, where um, Ron then developed Scientology. Uh, and just real quick, Dianetics, uh, if you read the book, deals with trying to remember what happened to you in the womb. And some of the early uh, followers of Ron, that wasn't good enough. They wanted to go back even farther. And so with Scientology in 1952, he proposed going back into previous lives to find out your traumas that had, had, had influenced your, your life in this lifetime. And that's kind of the key difference between the two of them. Uh, Bruce, as a member of the Sea Org, uh, how much of this history were you aware of? Oh, I got the sort of the party line on it. You know, I knew he'd been, you know, there'd be references to Wichita but for example, I didn't know that, you know, he lost the rights to Dianetics. And that's was that was one of the reasons why he started Scientology, because right. what was the name? Parcel or somebody got the the copyrights or something? I don't know. So, you know, we I didn't know all of it. I do parts. I knew that he'd been in Phoenix. Um, one of the reasons is the one of the books that everyone reads is called the Phoenix Lectures, and those are some lectures he gave there. Right. Uh, later on, there was I remember seeing images in I don't know if it was there was a little brochure that was made about Ellen Hubbard, and it maybe showed a picture of this house in Phoenix where he lived and stuff. So anyway, I knew bits and pieces, but certainly not the whole history. And she was just a really loyal lieutenant to him. She not only was his wife and they had four children, but, um, you know, she was, you know, well, when they decided to make not, you know, he had come out with Dianetics in 1950. In 1952, he, like you said, he had lost the use of that name. So he came up with this thing called Scientology and they went into past life therapy. And then 1953, things still were not going well. And so, um, he decided to try out the religion angle, he called it in a letter to uh, one of his chief followers, 
let's try the religion angle. And that's so the six people who signed uh, corporation documents in Camden, New Jersey, in December 1953, creating the first Church of Scientology corporation. Uh, Mary Sue was one of those signers. So, I mean, she was a key sort of lieutenant for him. And that became abundantly clear in later years. She was helping him to run Scientology. And in fact, she even took over, you know, the duties of running the spy wing to protect Scientology. She was the guardian, right? She was um, uh, the guardian's office. She was under her. How much of that, how much of that were you aware of and the whole Snow White thing? You know, it's, it's odd. You know, I, I, so in 1977, which I, I think is when the raid happened. Right. I didn't know about that. I didn't know that there'd been a raid and they got all this stuff. Um, oddly, right at that time, I was doing volunteer work for the guardian's office in Denver. I was called a guardian assistant Scientology. Uh, they were, we were called gas workers. Huh. And even though I was there right there in the geo, I still didn't know. And, you know, then things went on. I joined the Sea Org. I did not know what had happened on the snow white thing. They had some version that, um, I can't remember exactly when this was probably early eighties. And, they would, you know, because word of it would get around somehow. And they said, well, really all that um, they found the church guilty of was um, stealing copy paper. Oh, right. That, right. <laughs> and um, so that was what I knew about it. And at the time, in my mindset, it was just, oh, yeah, they're, you know, it's just the, another one of these attacks. They're trying to bring us down. You know, it's all bogus. And this. So I really didn't. Even what I heard, I didn't pay much attention to it. Right. And I, I really got a chance to dig into those documents when I was writing my book about Paulette Cooper, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. And I really went through some of those Snow White documents. And I learned that, you know, Mary Sue was very into this whole thing. And she was directing these operations. There's no question. Um, and she was ruthless about it. So it kind of made sense that she would end up being prosecuted in that. Uh, now John Atack told me when uh, we did a podcast recently that one of the reasons why she pled guilty and agreed to sign off on this massive memorandum about all the facts was she told them that I'll sign this and go to prison as long as you agree not to charge my husband. And L. Ron Hubbard was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. So she this is how loyal she was. She was willing to go to prison, making sure that her husband didn't. I mean, that's just, and you know, there's just no question. I, I could pull documents to show that Hubbard himself, of course, was aware what was going on with Snow White. And just real quickly, I mean, the press calls it Operation Snow White, but actually in Scientology, it was known as the Snow White Program. And this was, uh, you know, Hubbard was very concerned about all of the bad press that, that Scientology was getting. They were, they were at sea at that time in the late 60s, and they felt that they could never come to land again because the U.S. and U.K. governments were spreading all this information about them. And so uh, if you look at the original Snow White document, which I have carefully, he basically instructs them, we need to go and find out what these governments have in their files about us. And, and there's a line in there where he says, by any means necessary. So there's, it's no question that L. Ron Hubbard himself conceived the Snow White program and gave them the green light to use whatever means they could. And so they, they, they infiltrated these agencies. They got people hired in these agencies. They burglarized these agencies. They wanted to see what the FBI and CIA and all these people, what they had on Hubbard. And she, she largely directed that. So that's why she went to prison. It's, it, you know, yes, I, you're not the only person who's told me that the story inside of Scientology was, oh, they got caught stealing copy paper at the IRS. You know, I mean, the, the, the documents are there if you want to see just how nefarious this whole thing was. And she was definitely in charge with it. Now, what did they tell you about or what were you, what were you aware of um, 
I think she was sentenced to five years in prison and served like a year. And she came out. What was what did you think at that time as far as her status in the church after all that went down? I didn't even know she'd gone to prison. Wow. And we had no information at all about the trial and all the other people that got sent to prison. Um, it's sort of amazing what a hermetic bubble they were able to create. So we were just oblivious to all this. And if anybody caught wind of it, it's just the old, oh, that's just the usual and theta being spread by these evil people that are trying to stop our mission. Right. Yeah. Well, there's some remarkable scenes I've written about. Uh, John Brousseau told me um, once she came out, they they basically gave her that Chislehurst house that, that Bruce talks about in his story uh, that was on the bunker yesterday, where... Um, uh, she was living in this really nice house. It was, it's, it's very, it's, it's Los Feliz, right? It's very close to Griffith Park. Uh, mm-hmm. It's on Chislehurst, really nice house. It's just up um, the street also from the Celebrity Center. Interesting. Very close, right. I mean, she's right near all these different Scientology properties. Um, uh, my understanding is that was kind of her consolation prize. Okay, you went to prison on behalf of your husband. You saved him. Here's your prize that gave her this house. And I believe it was in her name. You raised that question in your story. Um, and, but there, you know, as far as, okay, so, so before Snow White, she was helping to run Scientology with Ron. And you made a really interesting statement that you believed if it weren't for David Miscavige and Snow White, that Mary Sue very, may very well have taken over and run Scientology after Ron's death. Yeah, um, it's really hard to know how it would have played out because David Miscavige from, you know, early on was very ambitious and, you know, he might have tried to discredit her to Ellen Hubbard so that that, he wouldn't have turned it over to her. But nonetheless, if things had just gone along and, you know, the Snow White thing was a success and the Guardian's office just carried on, um, I could just well imagine that she would have been the one. And like I said, I don't know how they would have structured it or what title she would have had, but it just makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, I, there's still a lot of admiration for her among uh, Scientologists and former Scientologists. You know, there's absolutely nothing about her on the Scientology website today. I mean, yeah, they, they, they pretend she never existed now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I got an email, someone who read the article that was on the bunker yesterday. And this was a person who had worked directly with her for a number of years, both on the ship and after, and just had very favorable things, you know, some things about her. Um, An example was she was married to a person who was a regular Sea Org member, and he was getting no sleep and was harassed and was always in trouble. And Mary Sue made sure that they got regular sleep and regular hours and they would get their day off. They got a day off a week, which was way more than the Sea Org members were getting. And that she really took an effort to take care of her staff. And other people I know who were in the GEO um, corroborated that. Yeah, and I think uh, John Atak and I had talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's some really interesting parallels between Mary Sue Hubbard and Shelley Miscavige that, um, you know, other people have noted what you just said, that that Mary Sue was seen as kind of a ameliorating figure that, you know, Ron could be so harsh and and she she would make sure that people were actually treated OK to kind of be a buffer from Ron, um, even yeah, though Shelley she did that, too, even though she even though Mary Sue, obviously, from the documents I have, could be a pretty ruthless leader of the GO and, you know, go after enemies and stuff like that. And then she, people tell me that about Shelly, that, you know, Dave goes through and beats people up and, and she's there to kind of calm people down and, and try to, and she would, you know, people, she would try to move people around so they'd be around her husband less. And so it's interesting that they both kind of played that role. And then Ron went into hiding and, and just never saw her after 1980. I think, Night the Christmas nineteen seventy nine, 
was the last time the whole family was together. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, I mean, Quentin was had, had killed himself by then. But uh, I've seen a photograph from that Christmas. Um, the remaining Hubbard family were all together. And then in February 1980, Ron went into permanent hiding. Uh, and nobody saw him. I mean, he was with Pat and Annie Broker. There was Sarge at the, at the ranch in Creston. But, um, he, you know, his own children... His own wife never saw him again after February 1980, and then he died in 1986. So he was the one in, in hiding uh, while Mary Sue had come out of prison and got the Chiselhurst house. But with Dave and Shelley, it's the other way around. It's Shelley who's in hiding because Dave put her there. But it's interesting some of these parallels. So so she so so Mary Sue's at Chiselhurst. It is a very nice house. I've been there myself. Uh, you, you described it well in your piece. Um, I mean, as a Sea Org member, you were used to some pretty meager surroundings, right? This must have seemed like a really nice house to you. Oh, it did. When I first got there, I went, whoa, check this out. I mean, seriously, it was, and it's in a really nice area. You know, there's different parts of Los Feliz, but this is, a, like I said in the piece, um, evidently Stevie Wonder owned a house right across the street. These, this was a an area where there were these mansions, basically. And when I first saw that, oh, this is where I'm going to be auditing this person, it was it was quite a, a, a culture shock. Well, you were this was um, around 1992, 1993 that you were interacting with her. Yeah, the first time was in '92, and I think when I started going to the house was in '93. So 1993, you're going to the Chiselhurst house. She died in 2002. But when you saw her in 93, you made it sound like she was already really having some health problems. Yeah, she definitely was. The The term they used was uh, chronic bronchitis. It may be called COPD these days. I'm not sure. Right. Um, but yeah, she was, she was definitely limited in what she could do physically and had to rest a lot and um, you know I don't know what medication she was on or anything probably not much since they're so against it I think you know she could, she had some kind of inhaler maybe prednisone or something I don't know what but um, yeah she, but anyway she, she was not doing well physically at all and you also mentioned that uh, about her dog uh, she she loved her Shih Tzu um, now this, I don't think this can possibly be the dog that later outlived her by 10 years. It must've been a previous one that you were seeing in 1993, but, uh, she did love her Shih Tzus, didn't she? Oh, she really did. And I had the idea from, I think Neville Potter that she liked that particular breed. I think earlier she had Corgis, like the queen or something, uh -huh. but, um, somehow she got on this, this particular breed, the Shih Tzu breed. And uh, she she adored it, right? Well, and 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 this is also something you probably didn't know at the time, but not only was she given this house as kind of the consolation prize for going to prison, but then David Miscavige had personally in, told her that she was no longer absolutely nobody in Scientology. And I know this because John Brousseau was in a van outside recording it that 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 Miscavige was wired. Uh, Miscavige wanted this recorded as he dressed her down. Really, uh, JB said it was cruel and just let her know that she was absolutely nobody. She had nothing to do with Scientology. She had no role. Um, and so she, as, as you describe, even though it was a beautiful house in a great part of LA, very close to Griffith Park, uh, very a house worth a lot of money, it was kind of a prison for her, wasn't it? Oh, definitely. She was there. She couldn't. She couldn't walk out the door without very special arrangements having been made and cleared up through the channels. Wow. And you were going there. How often would you go? I went once a day. Once a day. Wow. Yeah. Well, and it was five days a week. We didn't do it on the weekends. And then I would go up to the base on the during the weekends usually. And then, but at Monday through Friday, I can't remember, it was like at one o'clock or something. And then I would go and give the session and 
those sessions, when you're at that level, they tend to be shorter than when you're on a lower level of the. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And so, you know, I'd, I'd audit her probably half an hour to an hour a day, something like that. And there was always a little sort of social chat time before and a little bit afterwards. Well, so can I, you give, give me some sense of the social chats, what they were like? Oh, might talk about um, the weather. <laughs> or we'd talk about, um, what was that stuff? They sprayed met, methyl thiol? No, it was this chemical they were spraying around to kill fruit flies. I don't know. Uh -huh. This was, there was a whole period in, in the early 90s when the city of LA was trying to get rid of this fruit fly infestation. And they were spraying this stuff all around the environment. So we talked about that and joked how they said like, it's safe. Don't worry about it. It's safe, but don't let your pets be exposed to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, she would talk a little bit about some of the people that, you know, she'd worked with earlier. She still had some contact with the name Nikki Merwin, I think. I don't know much about that person. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that was, she would maybe been in the geo earlier. Um, I seem to remember how they, she felt that Jane Kember had been very unjustly treated or something. Interesting. Jane Kember was the leader of the Guardian's office working from worldwide in London or in the United Kingdom was, uh, I can't remember if she was in London or if she was at St. Hill, but um, do you I know? Think she was at St. Hill. St. Hill. So uh, Jane Kember is an interesting figure. I believe she was born in either Kenya or Zimbabwe. I can't remember which, Rhodesia, I guess. Well, I can't remember which one, mm -hmm. but um, she was this ruthless leader of Scientology's worldwide spy operation. And uh, when the FBI raided Scientology in 1977, they, they uh, charged nine people in the United States uh, with, you know, this, including Mary Sue Hubbard, but they also charged two in the, in the UK, including Jane Kember. And, and so she had to be prosecuted separately. Uh, but they ended up with 11 people going to prison, including Jane Kember. She's a, she, but she's a fascinating figure. And I, I, anyway, uh, that's interesting that she felt that Kember was mistreated. Yeah. Wow. Did she ever say anything about David Gaiman? Uh, no, not that I remember. Okay. Um, I, interestingly, I audited Neil Gaiman once at Flag. What year was that? Oh, it must have been about 1983 uh, or four. Wow. See, I've heard I've heard conflicting things about, well, maybe not conflicting things, but just sort of partial things about Neil's involvement. I knew that he was very involved in the 80s. Neil Gaiman, the, the world-famous uh, fantasy and sci-fi author, uh, his whole family. I mean, his father, David Gaiman, was was the most prominent Scientologist in the United Kingdom. His mother is still a big donor for the church, spending millions on Scientology. His sisters are very prominent. One sister is in the Sea Org. The other one is a very prominent Scientologist in the United Kingdom. Um, his nieces and nephews. His his nephew was the was in the first marriage uh, legally made under Scientology in 2015 or 2016. I mean, all, Neil is surrounded by hardcore longtime Scientologists, but he has left. But I, you know, one person was telling me. They thought he was the ED of Birmingham at some time at one point, which means he, he literally ran the Birmingham org. But I had not heard that he got uh, something at what, what what did he do at Flag? Well, um, gosh, it might have been. See, I, I definitely know that he had completed OT three. Okay, and so that's pretty high up for yep, yep. As a, you know the your run of the mill Scientologist. And he was there, and it might have been what they called, well, originally it was called the OT Drug Rundown, 
and that these days is called new OT4. Right. And I, oh boy, my memory. And let me foggy. and let me just interject. I love OT4 because everyone OT3 gets all the attention, but OT2 is wild. But OT2 is OT4 is cool because if you read Hubbard, he's he's literally saying, look, everyone needs a, a purification rundown. Everyone needs a drug rundown. Even people who tell you that they haven't done drugs in this lifetime, their body thetans are still having flashbacks from super space coke they did three billion years ago. I mean, he's, he, I mean, he doesn't use those words, but that's what he's saying. That yeah. you need to, you need to audit. You, basically, you need to take your body thetans to rehab <laughs> because they're still, you know tripping off of galactic LSD they had a million years ago. That's what Hubbard says. That's what OT4 is. And that's why I'm always thrilled when I hear of celebrities done OT4, like Greta Van Susteren and her husband have done OT4. And I just love that, that, you know, of course they would never ever say publicly, oh yeah, I had these invisible entities. I took these invisible <laughs> entities clinging to me to drug rehab because they did space coke a million years ago. But that's what OT4 is. Um, and, and it's great to hear Neil Gaiman has done that. Of course, he will never talk about that, I'm sure. No. And, you know, that was quite some time ago. And I'm sure he lost interest. I, I even got the sense, you know, he was there and he he was just a really nice guy. And he did all the things he was supposed to. And um, But I just got this sense that he really wasn't into it. Oh, interesting. Going through the motions. Yeah. Wow. And why I don't know why he would have gone to flag. He could have done that in the UK. Huh. Not, you know, OT four. That's right. That's not a required thing at, at flag. Well, you but go yeah, OT four. The whole thing is you're you trying are trying to locate body thetans that have been affected by drugs, and that includes drugs that you took someone took this lifetime, but also it would go to effects of drugs from earlier on. You know, way on the past track. Exactly what I was saying. Yeah. Well, um, that's wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> Neil Gaiman did OT. Listen, Bruce. The reason he was at Flag to do OT four is that's where you get the most standard Scientology. Well, supposedly, yeah. That <laughs> that, that was the PR. Exactly. You know, that was the... Wow. Okay. So we got a little tangent there, but. Um, uh, what about what about Mary Sue's case? I know you don't want to talk about, you know, things she said in auditing, but what can you tell us about her case? She was just a pretty much norm, average, you know, I audited people for years that were on the levels of, uh, you know, OT3, OT4, OT5, OT6, OT7, OT8. And so well, I had a lot of experience with that. And even though she, she'd gone through some, some of the really wilder auditing back in the mid-50s, early 50s, and also this, these experimental auditing that LRH, I want to call them, that okay. he was uh, investigated in the early 60s, and they were the subject of the St. Joe Special Briefing Course, and she was around for all that. And, it included the list one rock slams and everything. Um, but anyway, so she then, you know, just ended up on this, the grade chart then came out in 1965, the grade chart, the, the bridge as we, as it is called now. Okay. Everything was sort of pulled together into this chart. Before that, it was much more uh, hodgepodge. And so, you know, she just be, got onto that or sort of fit into it. And when I was auditing her, she was just like anyone else at that level that I'd audited. Okay. And uh, I probably the most mind-blowing thing you had in the story uh, was that she told you that after Ron died, his Thetan came and apologized to her? Yep. How did that come up? How did that even come up? I, I, we, I don't know. We're, it's probably one of these. We're just talking one day um, before a session. And 
I can't remember specific words, but I definitely got from her the idea that uh, he hadn't really abandoned her. And definitely that she still believed in what he did and she still viewed him as the guy that came up with this technology that was going to save the world. And again, she didn't say the words, but the idea that probably he had to do what he did because of circumstances, you know, security reasons or whatever. And then it probably in a conversation about that is when she said that when he passed away, he did come and he did apologize to her. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, but for someone, um, it's, it is like, you know, you've written a little bit about the OT phenomena and Jeff Hawkins talked about it. And, right. Um, you know, it was for a Scientologist, that's sort of particularly an quote unquote OT Scientologist. That's the kind of thing that didn't seem like that big a deal, except for the fact of the apology. Right. I mean, uh, he certainly owed her one. I mean, just <laughs> boy, did he. I mean, I mean, she deserved what she got. She really did. Yeah. But he, she didn't deserve to be treated by her husband that way. Yeah. And I mean, his kids, I, I don't, I don't know. It was so strange just to disappear. I, I understand he didn't want to be uh, served lawsuits. He didn't want to get criminally prosecuted. He felt he needed to be in hiding, but he just just abandoned his wife and kids that way. Very strange. Of course, none of them are mentioned on Scientology's website today. You can't find anything about his first wife, Polly, his second wife, Sarah, or his third wife, Mary Sue, or any of his children, Nibs, Katie, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the child he had with um, Sarah. Um, gosh, this is terrible. And then <laughs> the four children he had with Mary Sue. None of those people are mentioned at all. As far as the church is concerned, none of them existed. It's so strange. What did yeah. you What did you hear about the family when you were in? Well, um, I didn't know about Quentin's suicide at all. Okay. I didn't know what happened to him. But um, I audited Arthur at the Celebrity Center quite a lot. Okay. Um, I don't. I got the idea he kind of dropped away, but he was still involved in, and I audited him a fair amount. I also audited Suzette uh, briefly. She had just, um, she took off from the Sea Org. She, the term is blow. She blew. Right. And um, and she was trying to sort things out with Guy White at that time. I don't, you know, I, I didn't really follow it much after that. So I knew them. Okay. And I knew that Arthur was out there and was being an artist. Right. And people in RTC were still talking to him. And they were trying to get him to be sort of a good artist, you know, that did wholesome things. Uh, Arthur had a thing where he would take some of his own blood. He would yep. make this sort of nice uh, pen and ink drawing of a pretty girl. Right. And then he would put his, he would spatter his blood onto the thing. And Mark yeah. Sutter from RTC would come down and talk to him and try to tell him how he shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just real quick for the record, because I'm sorry I blanked on that name. Real, just we'll run through it real quick. Hubbard's first wife was Polly, Margaret Polly Grubb. Uh, they were married in 1933 and divorced in 1947. They had a son, L. Ron Hubert Hubbard Jr., that they usually called Nibs. Later in life, he changed his name to Ron DeWolf. Uh, they also had a daughter, Katie, Nibs's sister. Um, she died just in 2010. Um, Hubbard's second wife was Sarah Northrup, and he married her in 1946 while he was still technically married to Polly, uh, whose that marriage didn't end until 47. So they was, he was technically a bigamist. Um, they were divorced in 51. They had a daughter, Alexis, who was born in 1950. Then Hubbard married Mary Sue Whip in 1952. They had two sons and two daughters, Diana in 1952, 
Quentin in 1954. He committed suicide in 1976. Suzette, born in 1955, and Arthur, born in 1958. Diana is the only one who's still, you know, in Scientology. She's in the Sea Org. She's at InBase. They trot her out occasionally. Uh, like I said, Quentin died. Suzette and Arthur both live in Los Angeles. They're both, I guess, out of Scientology. They're not speaking. Although Arthur has started blogging. I've noticed, I've noted this at the bunker, uh, and I've checked. He ha- He's still writing more entries. He's basically he's basically kind of re- trying to rehabilitate his dad in early Dianetics. Uh, he, he sounds a lot like other independent Scientologists. Uh, uh, and I, I have a, I wonder if he's going to try to do more with that at some point. I think people would be interested to see what he has to say. It's kind of a, uh, odd blog he's writing. So really, that's the, that. yeah, that's the state of the family. Um, but then, uh, yeah, so you were, you, you got to audit Mary Sue Hubbard, the whole, just that concept still just amazes me. <laughs> yeah. It was quite a thing at the time. And yet you felt like you were relieved that it didn't get you in more trouble. Explain that. Well, often. So there's a, a this piece of information, this datum in Scientology technology that um, a person can get into what they call ethics trouble. That means that it's deemed that they did things they shouldn't have or withheld something they shouldn't have. And so they then, um, and it, it could take on a lot of things, but you know, they're being handled with their ethics technology. It's a whole different thing than regular auditing or anything. And, but there's a datum that if a person gets an ethic ethics trouble, or if they go out ethics, as they say, there had to be prior errors in their, in their auditing or in their, their handling with a technology that they refer to as the tech. And so whenever someone gets an ethics trouble like that, you're supposed to go look at their auditing and dig through the folders and find out. So what, how was the auditing done incorrectly? And it's always viewed that it's not the technology that's wrong. It's only the application, the person who's doing it made a mistake. And so, um, I've seen it time and again, there'll be some sort of person and someone of some standing and they get into ethics trouble. They, you know, they find out that they had an affair or something. And then they'll go back into their auditing folders and say, oh, and they're, they're almost obligated to find some error because Hubbard said there would have to be an error. I see. And, and then the auditor and the, probably the case supervisor also would then get in trouble and depending how severe and everything, um, you know, they have to do some kind of correction. They might have to do a retrain of their courses or something. Um, and so you kept waiting, Mary Sue's going to get into some kind of trouble and I'm going to be blamed for it. Yeah, exactly. Particularly after, you know, I got sent to the rehabilitation project force about, uh, about a year after I stopped auditing her. And so I sort of think, well, she was like a pretty important person. If she really acted up or um, really started complaining or making threats or something, you know, the blame would go to me, or at least I would be one of the people blamed, but I never heard anything. So that was good. And how long do you think did this last that you were auditing her daily? It was about a year. A year. Yeah. Now over that time, um, was there some pressure on you that she should physically be feeling better? Yeah, because the the what L. Ron Hubbard wrote is that if you do this and this and this, the person should get better. They should be um, regain their health or whatever. And I do think you know that she did get somewhat better. Uh-huh. Uh, the reason for that, I don't know exactly. Um, it, you know, is it just getting some caring attention, you know, right. I, that can go a long ways. Right. I don't know exactly, but, um, 
at least it seemed like the people who were watching this, the case, the person who was doing the case supervision of this, you know, they felt like she was doing better and it was good enough to, to claim that the auditing had been successful. Right. Well, she was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer two years later in 1995, and she died in 2002. Um, did you hear about any of that at the time? No, it was, it's interesting. But that said, um, when you're on the RPF, yeah, um, you don't hear know anything that's going on in the Scientology world. So I don't know if it was... I, but I would suspect that um, even the people at the Ent base, the regular Sierra members working there, I doubt if they knew anything about that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer and that she, you know she passed away. They probably didn't even know. And it strikes me, I suddenly thought of this, that you spent a year with her every day, you know, an hour a day, just try to help her with things. Um, by the end of that period... Did you feel like she, you know, had some affinity for you? Oh, yeah. She was always happy to see me. She was not cold at all. Um, you know, she'd like greatly greet me warmly and ask how I was doing. And um, I would I would say definitely, yeah. And why did it end when it did? It was just that this the program that was laid out to be audited had come. We'd finished it. And, you know, that's also a point because I know they wanted her to, you know, sort of come clean is, that's one way to say it, you know, get rid of these evil things she's harboring and the, the, the bad actions she did that she hasn't told anybody about. And that's supposed to bring about a resurgence in her affinity for the organization. Well, then, so were you being debriefed by somebody that wanted to find out what she knew? Um, well, that comes through the auditing instructions. Um, so the style of auditing, it's called the false purpose rundown. And the way that works is that you're given a list of questions. It's like a, another type of auditing that's similar is a, it's called a security check or also a confessional. But it's basically a long list of questions. The, the most famous one is the Joburg or the Johannesburg confessional with all these crazy questions. But that's an example of the yeah. kind of questions. Right. But for her, they were geared to, you know, things that she might have done either as, you know, in the guardian's office or in relation to uh, Scientology management or so I know I knew from the questions what sort of things that they wanted to find find out about so even though she had spared her husband even though she had gone to prison for Scientology years later she was still being interrogated by it, about it by the Church of Scientology yeah and that's because it was known I think largely through Neville Potter's reports that, you know, she still was not a fan of David Miscavige and how things were being run. You know, she was involved in Scientology management for a long time, and she didn't think that what was, whatever she knew about what was happening, she had some information. Um, I'm not sure where she got it exactly, but um, maybe just from seeing the international events. You know, but she was not in agreement with everything. Um, when I was writing this piece, I started to wonder, like, because, you know, my recollection isn't that great for that that long ago, 30 years or whatever. But um, I mentioned that she was quite favorable about the Church of Scientology getting tax exemption from the IRS. Right. And so there she's actually speaking positively. And that might have been something where whoever was monitoring this, because I don't know where I would write reports every day. They go in the folder and then they, um, you know, I don't know who would look at them or get in, informed about them, but that might've been something that um, they said, okay, so we're making some progress here. She's actually saying something good. Yeah. 
I don't know that for a fact, but I, I kind of wondered, like, why did they decide that the auditing was successful, quote unquote? Wow. That's, uh, and, and were there many overt mentions of miscavige that you can relate to us? From her? Yeah. I mainly heard it from Neville. Ah. She didn't really say it to me directly. Um, uh, if it came up in a session, she might speak in general terms of how she wasn't in agreement with something. Mm-hmm. But it was, Neville would talk to her, and I think she would confide in him a bit. And so she, he, we would talk, Neville and I would talk outside of, you know, where she would be in someplace else in the house, or he'd, we'd be walking outside or something. And so he said, talked about how she was critical of Miscavige and what he was doing. So after a year that ended, and like I said, she developed breast cancer and she died in 2002. Uh, and like I said, I, I, I doubt it was the same Shih Tzu that you saw, but by then she had a Shih Tzu that she named Tizu. That's just the last three letters of Shih Tzu is T-Z-U. And so that was his, that was the dog's name was Tizu. And it was pronounced that, like I just said, and in her will, she said that as long as Tizu was alive, she wanted that house kept the way it was so that he, you know, she might be gone, but at least he still has his house. Well, that dog <laughs> lived until, let's see, 2012? Yes. That dog outlived her by 10 years. <laughs> That's just crazy. And uh, I found out about this. Um, I broke this story in, in August 2013 that Tizu had finally died in 2012, 10 years after Mary Sue did. And so finally the family was putting the house together to sell it. And um, I mean, my impression is that the kids got very meager um, uh payments out of you know when hubbard died and from scientology and that this was a chance for them to finally get some decent money (laughs) was to sell their mother's house and uh so i broke that story in august 2013 that the family was getting the house ready and then they pulled it they, they changed their mind and waited another year i one person that was involved told me they didn't like my story whatever but maybe it just wasn't a good time to put a house on the market. But they did wait a year. They put it up. And I think they did end up selling it for like $2.5 million. Uh, some Asian couple, I think, bought it. It was a 3,155 square feet house, 30,155 square feet, four bedrooms, three bathrooms, nice swimming, swimming pool. As I said, in 2013, Tizu had it good. <laughs> Do you know um, who stayed in the house and took care of the dog? Well, I mean, as far I mean, you were there. You saw you named the people that were working there, Neville Potter and those and the others. And as far as I know, the team stayed in place even after she died. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And um that 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 I don't know if Neville was still there, but there was some crew there, some, you know, one or two people taking care of the house, taking care of Tizu. For 10 years. <laughs> I just, you know, you can say what you want about joining the Sea Org. It's really dumb. But when you do it, you think you're doing, you're serving some really high purpose here. You're right. sacrificing your life because you're going to help, you know, actually save the planet from its own self-destruction. And so someone who joins a Sea Org for that, and then they end up taking care of a dog for 10 years. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> Because it would have had to have been a Sea Org member, I think. They wouldn't have just hired anybody to go in. I think you're right. I think it must have been. And, uh, yeah, I, I, at one point, I, I just thought it was very poignant that in that, I think it was in that house, Christmas 79 was the last time the family got together. 
and there's there's you can find a photograph of it and i just thought there was something interesting about that i think i at one point oh, that's I, where the photograph was taken that's i i believe so that the the last time the hubbard family was together was at the chiselhurst well no that can't be right because she went to prison in 80 so i'm wrong about that well it might have been up in the palm springs area Rifle or wherever it was. Yeah, I'm wrong about that. You're right. So wherever they were in 79, couldn't have been the Chiselhurst house. But wherever they were in 79 was their last Christmas. And I just thought there was something kind of sad about that. You know, Arthur and Suzette and Diana and Ron and Mary Sue uh, before he went off. would probably know. Yeah, I don't know where they were, but I've seen the photograph where they they were together that last that last Christmas. But uh, but wow, you've really given us a view into into what it was like once once she was in exile. Yeah, I, I wanted to because I didn't know how many people knew much about her, or I certainly didn't. So I thought I'd at least pass on the bit of firsthand knowledge I had. Well, like I said, I think people there's still a lot of warm feelings for her from Scientologists. Um, and I think she's an interesting figure that way because she, um, there's an, there is an interesting recording. It's kind of rare. I, I posted it years ago from the early fifties where she and Ron are trying to locate entities. This is before he's developed the full blown body things theory and it's 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 such a strange audio recording because he's they're on an e-meter and uh he's sort of like trying to understand these entities and she's going oh there's one there's one <laughs> cuz she's she's just looking at the needle right and, yeah. and and she's seeing Ron somehow react and uh it's to me it's just like they were using a Ouija board to try to find you know you know spirits or whatever exactly uh, but she, but it uh, it's an interesting recording for me because it shows that she really was fully bought into this with him and very supportive of him and it's just a shame that she kind of got this little prison very nice very pretty prison but little prison for those last years of her life yeah <clears throat> it's really amazing but still it went from whatever 19 19- 80 or 81 up to 2002. That's a long time to be. 22 years, yeah. Huh. Wow. Well, uh, and then um, anything else you had uh, you could think about uh, that whole episode that you want to tell us about? Well, let's see. Kind of came up with everything I could remember. Um. There's Neville's interesting character. I mentioned him. Um, and, you know, he, he had been an auditor himself and did actually audit her with Ellen Hubbard supervising that auditing. Oh, so that was, was, oh, yes, that was interesting. You were telling me, so that was the early 80s, right? Yeah. Acor- according to her files, in the early 80s, Neville yeah, was auditing. 80, 81, I'm not sure. Okay. But I thought it was during the time where the, conviction was being appealed okay so neville was auditing her and and ron was basically csing it right he was yep sort of managing it from above and tell me a little bit more about that well so the what the case supervisor does is they read every single session and then they give a grade to the session and it can be very well done which is what you help so hope you'll get uh-huh. and that's usually written bwd and sometimes Scientologists will say that to each other, oh, VWD. Um, <laughs> and, or it can be just a well done, and that's pretty good, but that means you made a little goof. And then there's well done by exam, which means basically the auditor fucked it up, but somehow when they went to the examiner, the, the person being audited went to the examiner after the session, they still had a floating needle. And then the worst one was flunk. Anyway, mm-hmm. the case... And then if you got a flunk, like you were, as an auditor, you had to, a serious cramming order you had to deal with. I see. Um, so, and then they, they read it all, and then they write comments about what's going on. So it's, in, it's on a sheet of paper, and the CS writes the, this 
grade of the session at the top, and then all these comments of what the auditor, what the case supervisor thinks, um, you know, should be done or things, observations made about what happened in the session or what sh should happen in the next session or something. And then writes out the instructions for the next session. Um, generally, usually the auditor themselves suggest the steps for the next session and then the case supervisor will either okay that or might change it somewhat. But anyway, th this was all written by Elron Hubbard, these sessions. Wow. And um, so it was all in his writing, the original handwriting. It wasn't a photocopy or anything. That was sort of, I'd never seen that before. And um, so she was, she had some physical illness at the time. I want to say she might've had a, pancreatitis or something like that. Okay. Not sure. And then, um, and then plus she was under the stress of like this court case and hearings and whatever was going on. And so the idea is that when a person is in that state, they have to be audited sort of very lightly and very gently. And, but you, you do enough where it starts to like, you know, basically free up their, their theta or whatever, however, you know, that's what they would say and gradually bring the person out of this um, overwhelmed state that they're in. And um, so that all those instructions that he was writing to Neville about how to do this type of auditing, and specifically for someone who's at the level of Ned for OTs, this is the body, it's above OT3, but it's still just do, dealing with body thetans. And those his remarks were taken verbatim out of these um, case supervisor instructions that he'd written to Neville and put in a technical bulletin, or we would call them an HCLB. And that's what you an auditor studies when they're getting trained. Right. And so they took what he did and generalized it for anybody who's under severe stress or heavy stress or, or is physically ill to use this approach in auditing. It's different than how you would normally audit a person. But I mean, I'm trying to understand. So I believe at this time Hubbard's in seclusion, but these documents are being brought to him and he's directing the sort of interrogating of his own wife because she's got a physical illness. Yeah. Now how the, the sessions got to him, I don't know. Um, at that time, I don't know if he was already in Creston by then or what. That'd be a long drive to get these records up to up to him. But somehow he he was getting them and he was writing them and Neville would get the folder, the folder, the auditing folder back the next day with the instructions in it. Well, I think okay, so Hubbard went into permanent hiding in February nineteen eighty. Um, he died. Maybe, it, maybe it was before that. Maybe he was oh, okay. still in the... It's possible. Okay. And so he so would have still he... been in the Palm Springs area then. Or Hammett, right? He was at he was at the Hammett Apartments uh, until uh, he, he, he left in February 1980. So it might have been Hammett, might have been, oh, yeah, like you're saying, Hammett, yeah. out near Palm Springs. But... Um, uh, so maybe he wasn't in hiding then yet when he was CSing his own wife. Who knows? Yeah, it could be. Okay. I could but, have had the date slightly wrong. Yeah. Odd. Interesting. Great. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for giving us this glimpse into Mary Sue Hubbard's later years and especially in her exile when you spent a year with her. I just think that's wonderful and exciting and interesting. Well, you're very welcome. I hope people find it interesting. Oh, it's a great I, I piece. Do. It's a great piece, and I can't wait to see what you do for us next, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye.